Welcome to the Plant Witch Podcast, where we enter together into the web of life in all of its many seen and unseen dimensions. I'm Erin Schrader, owner of the Rebel Herbalist, and it is my honor to hold this portal to the other world. Let's enter, shall we? Welcome to episode nine of the Plant Witch Podcast. In this episode, we will look at some difficult material, as seems to be the trend lately for me. Uh, it's just, I just feel it so deeply that so much of the pain we see in our world grows from the root of unprocessed pain and trauma that has not been tended to lovingly. In his book, The Smell of Rain on Dust, Martine Prechtel outlines a detailed process for mourning and grieving for the modern human. He warns us that the dead, when not properly grieved, cannot become ancestors, and instead they haunt our family line in the form of addiction, mental illness, toxic family dynamics, Martin was guided in the ways of tending the soul through his time with the Zutuhil people of the Atitlan region of Guatemala. He shares their belief that our grief and our love act as a river of tears and a boat that ferry the dead to the next shore where they become our guiding, helpful, loving, intact ancestors. For those of us who are displaced, who are not living on ancestral land that have been tended and enlivened by our people for thousands of years, this is almost all of us, by the way, our connection to the stories of our ancestors has been disrupted, corrupted, erased by the destructive movement of colonization across the world. When our stories are lost, when the fabric of culture has been shorn, when the ways of belonging have been ruptured, we are set adrift. We can't draw strength from the line of beings who have struggled and lived and danced and prayed and died for our lives to unfold. We can't see far enough into the future to add our own struggle and dance and prayer to the vitality of our children's children. We are adrift on a tiny vessel in a strange land without belonging. We've lost the context. We've lost the meaning. We've lost the arc of the story. We're left with only our tiny life, almost meaningless in the enormity of the mass of lives being lived at this time on this earth. But if we have the stories, the thousands of stories of the thousands of ancestors who have lived and died to make our lives possible, suddenly our life is part of a swelling tide of meaning 
We know the roots of the tree on which our life grows as a branch or a leaf or a fruit. I first got interested in the larger story arc, oh my gosh, probably 16 years ago when I was reading the Celestine Prophecy. In his book, James Redfield creates this fictional story where a group of people find a secret and powerful manuscript describing the process of human evolution throughout time and through the generations. He offers us a meta story, a purpose, a timeline. Although fictional, it inspired me. I wanted to understand my part in our collective meta story more fully. So I began to study history, a subject that never really excited me too much when we were in high school or college, but now I was interested. I read about ancient history in Egypt and Mesopotamia, in Europe and North America. I read historical fiction like the Earth's Children series by Jean All that speculates about life in the Upper Paleolithic era 30,000 years ago. Our family had our DNA analyzed for our ethnicity. And through that process, we discovered that we're descendants of Atsi the Iceman. And we were also discovered that we are descendant of a female Viking warrior buried with her horses, her cart, and her armor. After extensive ancestry research, I've learned among my ancestors are a friend of Rembrandt's, a revolutionary war hero, the first reformed church pastor of Pennsylvania, who was also a friend to a group of hermits that were an apocalyptic cult living on the Wissahickon who claimed to have the Philosopher's Stone. So as you can see, my family is full of adventurers, warriors, poets, orators, alchemists, farmers, laborers, Catholics, Protestants, Quakers, Mennonites, Rosicrucians, Scots-Irish, Swiss, German, and English folks. We are an eclectic bunch of immigrants who fled from Europe after the devastating wars led by King Louis XIV and the worsening conditions for the Scots-Irish as they were squeezed between the Anglicans and the Catholics. My ancestors found a harsh life here on Turtle Island. Many of them fought in the wars for independence for the United States. Many of them died of smallpox and other diseases. But enough of them lived through these first rough generations that we got a strong foothold in this place. And we've been here since the early 1700s. This land, when my family arrived, was the home of the Iroquois Confederacy. They called themselves the Haudenosaunee. To the east were the Leni Lenape. Here in Dover, where I live today, my family lived alongside the Catawago people. This is likely not the name they called themselves, but the name that has been given to them by our ancestors, our, our settler ancestors. These people were a subset of the Haudenosaunee. And this place was called Conewago in their language, which means the place of the rapids. I have found written records of my family building a mill here when they noticed a few of the Conewago people watching them from the forest. They invited them to join in on the mill building and paid them for their labor, for their labor with homebrewed beer. 
relations between my ancestors and the Kanawago at that time and in that place seemed to be friendly and cooperative, but that was not the case for all people in this area. In South Central Pennsylvania, where I live, we carry the horrible story of the Paxton boys and that story mars our history. In 1763, the Paxton boys were a vigilante group that came together in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, along the Susquehanna River. This group of Scots-Irish frontiersmen, led by their pastor, incidentally, sought revenge on the Conestoga people, which were the remnants of the Susquehannock tribe. There had recently been a deadly fight between the Lenny Lenape and settlers near Philadelphia. And the Paxson boys claimed that the Conestoga people had provided aid and intelligence to the group who had murdered settlers in the Philadelphia area. These claims were false, but the Paxson boys took their revenge anyway. On the morning of December 14, 1763, the Paxton boys raided a Conestoga village and murdered six people. They also burned their homes. There were 16 members of the Conestoga people remaining after this murderous raid. They were, that was it. That was the rest of their people. All that was left after assimilation by the Haudenosaunee, and then confrontation with European settlers, there were 16 people left of the, this Susquehannock tribe. William Penn, who was the founder of Pennsylvania, ordered that these remaining Conestoga people be taken into protective custody until the Paxton boys could be dealt with. On December 27th, 1763, the Paxton boys broke into the building where the Conestoga were being held for their safety and murdered every one of them. They were mostly children. They were scalped and dismembered. They did it in broad daylight in front of the town of Lancaster. The government put out a $600 reward for information on the whereabouts and identity of the Paxton boys, but no one ever came forward. The local people protected them, likely sympathetic to their cause. Since the Paxton boys were never identified, I have no way of knowing if my ancestors from Ulster were among them whether my hot-headed Scots-Irish forebears were part of this massacre or not. This story has impacted my family and continues to impact my life and the lives of my children. The trauma of the eradication and genocide of the Conestoga, the Lenny Lenape, the Iroquois Haudenosaunee has seeped deeply into the bones of this land the deaths of thousands of men at Gettysburg during the Civil War 
is held in the bones of this land. These stories are our stories. Our ancestors did not confront and address these atrocities, so they are left for us to face and to heal. For me, this is the work of magic. Just as Martine Prechtel offers us a formula for grieving, we have to find our own methods for grieving the destruction, oppression, erasure, enslavement, and murder that lives in our history. Martine suggests that we go to the ocean. The ocean is the mother of us all, after all. She can hold the enormity of our grief and transform it. But we have to honor her in sacred relationship. We mustn't take our healing from her or make a teaching out of it or commodify it. Healing requires our humility before the greatness of the mother ocean because only through this deep humility can her medicine reach to the wounds that need this healing balm. Our arrogance, our rigidity, our ambition are walls that keep us from receiving the love and the healing that we desperately need and that would change everything. The ocean is several miles, well, several hours really, (laughs) away from me, but I have a river. The mighty Susquehanna, perhaps the oldest river in the world, is 444 miles from its home at Ostego Lake in Cooperstown, New York, to where she empties herself into the Atlantic through the giant meteor crater that is the Chesapeake Bay in Haverda Grace, Maryland. This river existed when the land masses were still congealed in the motherland mass of Pangaea. She has seen it all. She knows the story of humans, of animals, of dinosaurs, of plants. She has carried the stories of the land to the sea for many millions of years. I can trust her with my grief. I can let my walls down to receive the flow of her medicine through the tender and raw places within me. Find a place like this near you. Find an ancient place a river, a mountain, an old tree, and bring your grief here. Practice being seen in your weakness and vulnerability. It is so much easier to access this wound of exile and lostness when in the presence of ancient non-human beings. When we are humble, the ancestors crowd around us. The earth rises up through the soles of our feet. The sky father descends into our inhale. The waters of our body remember their home in the ground and the sky and the sea. We become incarnated. We become human. And from this place, we can taste belonging. In her book called Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home, Tokopa Turner teaches that we can all cultivate the skills of belonging by learning our stories, the stories of our people, of the land we live on, the stories of the items we use in our homes every day, the stories of the food we eat and how it arrived at our plate, the stories of the scars on our bodies and the wounds in our spirits. By accepting and loving these stories, We belong ourselves to them. 
from this place of love, we begin tending to these beloveds more deeply and creating beauty instead of being frozen in shame. This is something you will likely find yourself doing at your sacred place of grief. You will create beauty there because when we are in our hearts, we can't help but create beauty. Perhaps you'll clean up trash that you find or remove vines that are tangling and suffocating a tender plant or tree, or you'll tie a beautiful ribbon to the branches to carry your prayers or leave a sacred gem to hold your love for the land and the beings that help you move your grief. Many years ago, when I was overwhelmed by the grief of my hospice work, I came to the banks of the Susquehanna with my heaviness and I laid it down on her rocky shore. I found a green stone that I'd been carrying in my car. I don't know gemstones at all, but maybe it was an agate. I poured my love and my gratitude and my promise of reciprocity into the stone and I cast it into the river. Every time I visit her now, I can feel that stone throbbing out there in the deep waters. It knows me. It knows my heart. And the river knows me too. My love of the Susquehanna has tendered my heart for the grief of the Susquehannock people, the Conestoga, who were eradicated by waves of my ancestors. They loved this river too. It was their home. We're still discovering remnants of their life here and the lives of the Shanks Ferry people who came before them. We've found eel weirs and petroglyphs. I read an account of an early explorer in the 1600s who traveled the Susquehanna by boat and said that there were fires burning on both sides of the river along its whole length. Densely populated villages, all gone, all displaced or killed. I love the Susquehanna, and she loved those people. She loves those people. The stones still hold their stories, just as the stone I cast holds mine. This land that I walk on, that grows the food and medicine I provide for my family, is fertile from the blood and the bones of the Haudenosaunee, of the Susquehannock, of the Conewago, of the Shanks Ferry people whose names we will never know. My family has been here for 11 generations, and so their blood and bones hum with life within the soil too. Their lives and deaths are intertwined with those of the native people who were erased. This earth is full of the bones of the dead, and these bones require sifting, sorting. They must be marked and made hollow. Their stories heard and felt, their pain acknowledged and grieved, their contributions honored and celebrated. In this way, we face our own grief and pain and contributions, and we help these erased people become the ancestors they were meant to be. I'm still learning every day. I've been confronting and deeply feeling these stories for a decade or more now, and I'm still barely scraping the surface. I keep them alive in my life by framing pictures of my ancestors in the house, asking my elders for their stories, reading about the times my ancestors lived through from first-person historical accounts, 
I recommend the Zen Education Project for great resources. I visit their graves. I honor the spirits of this land with offerings and prayers and gratitude. And I actively work for reconciliation within myself and in my community. My ancestors fled brutality in Europe and they brought that brutality here with them. This is the origin of so much pain and violence and defensiveness. We must confront these tendencies in ourselves so that we stop perpetuating them down through the generations and out into our communities. Many years ago, I was in meditation when I encountered an ancestor. She lived in a stone cottage in the forest alone. She gathered herbs for medicine and was a bit of an outlaw. She promised to teach me and to guide me through my work with the plants. She told me to call her Aunt Tess, but that her real name was Magdalena. I later found about a dozen Magdalenas in my family tree, so I can see why she differentiated herself. She taught me that even though my connection to my culture has been severed and erased, that the wisdom of the old one still lives in our bones and will rise through us to teach us new ways of ceremony that we can live out in these times and in these places. We don't need to take anything from other cultures. We only need to connect deeply to this land we find ourselves on and these ancestors who live deep within us. They will guide us. They will open the way. But they cannot do their work when we are guarded and defensive and overly ambitious. Thankfully, we also have wise elders who are willing to share their teachings. Elders like Martine Prechtel and Tokopa Turner, Dr. Clarissa Picola Estes, Starhawk, Rosemary Gladstar, Pat McCabe, Linda Black Elk, Robin Wall Kimmerer, and so many more. We have the resources available to us to heal, to honor, to alchemize, and to repair. It just requires our will and our humility. Thank you for joining me for the Plant Witch Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Schrader. I'm an herbalist, a mother, a holistic nurse, and a practitioner of the ancient ways. You can connect with me between episodes at therebelherbalist.com or on Instagram and Facebook at The Rebel Herbalist. Thank you for joining me, and it's time to come back to life.